We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Major Tom McKay is on the board. Wild Willers can booking the guests in the legendary CHML newsroom, Jennifer McQueen. Here's Scott Thompson. Ah. That'll warm you up before you get out there and shovel some snow. It is Hamilton today. I'm Scott Thompson, 900 CHML. Okay, so here we go. And, um, you know, this is uh, pretty big news of the day because we remember, although, you know, considering the, uh, uh, you know, Palestinian, pro-Palestinian po- protests we've seen in the conflict uh, with uh, the Hamas and Israeli war and, and, and not only that, but Ukraine and such. You hark back onto the um, onto the Emergencies Act and the honking horns in Ottawa. It seems, although quite annoying and very, very, very intrusive, uh, hardly what we're seeing around the world and what would cause an emergency act to be called. First of all, um, and man, we studied this pretty much every day as it happened. And just to really quickly put you through it, uh, they knew they were coming. Uh, there was a small group that started all of this. And when they arrived in Ottawa after the prime minister uh, on a uh, on a French talk show said uh, words like misogyny and racist to describe those truckers who were not getting vaccinated. And by the way, the vaccination rate at the at that time for the first dose was like 90 percent, including the trucking industry. So this really was not a problem uh, in the first place. But of course, mandatory vaccines became a wage a wedge issue when the prime minister called an election in the middle of a global pandemic, trying to win his majority back, lost more, ended up with the NDP. We are where we are. So when all of this arrived on the steps of the prime minister, um, he just kind of downplayed it. And then when it looked like it was staying for a couple of days, all of a sudden he was exposed to COVID and he couldn't go near anybody. So it sort of fell off the round shoulders of the prime minister to the round shoulders of the uh, Ottawa mayor. And then eventually the round shoulders of the police chief. And we know where the latter two are now. They're gone after, uh, you know, lots of investigation after this. The point is it should have never happened. Another point is uh, it shouldn't have been allowed to excel the way that it did. And what really I think politicians were hoping was that everybody would just turn their back on them and they would walk out of town with their tail between their legs. And the reaction was quite the opposite. So uh, today we have found out that the federal court has ruled the Emergency Act was unreasonable and not justified. And, um, you know, as a result of that, uh, all of this could have been avoided and there were rights that were violated. Uh, yes, there were things that need to be done, but I just suggested that earlier, including getting all four uh, different police associations that are involved with patrolling the federal government lands of Parliament Hill, uh, working in the same direction. And I'm not sure we've even accomplished that yet. So uh, when everybody passes the buck on to somebody else and doesn't face what is uh, building in their own front yard, then we have what we have, and there's nothing left to do but take some sort of central organization because everybody seemed to be shooting in you know several different directions. The prime minister running, of course, and hiding. So uh, today the news came out that the Emergencies Act was unreasonable, not justified by the federal court. Christia Freeland says they're going to take it to the Supreme Court. Here's what she had to say. The public safety of Canadians 
was under threat, our national security, which includes our national economic security, was under threat. After letting it build for three weeks and doing nothing but hiding and just pushing it on to the police, yes, that's what it becomes. So don't do anything and then bring in the sledgehammer, kind of like with housing, with population, with health care. Let the problem happen as opposed to come up with a plan beforehand and then try to solve it. Oh, now we got to call the Emergencies Act. Here's what Government Affairs Minister Dominic LeBlanc had to say. It's not banal when the security services tell you that they found two pipe bombs and 36,000 rounds of munition uh, and ended up laying criminal charges as serious uh, as conspiracy to commit murder uh, and assaulting peace officers. And here's what the justice minister uh, had to say about appealing this. A member of the Court of Appeal, Justice Rulo, conducted a very public, comprehensive and transparent investigation into the reasonableness of the government's decision. That decision stands at odds with the decision that was rendered today. I think that is important and that also informs our decision and our basis upon which we will proceed to an appeal. I think it's also important to note this politician is pointing at a red herring. Because the Justice Rulo Commission was not binding and was not subject to any of the information or certainly not much of what the, the government of Canada was. So, again, it is also stated in Justice Rulo's uh, uh, report that he didn't have all the information. So to compare a committee or a suggestion committee against the federal court of the country is just absurd and again another distraction so again no doubt action needed by the time everybody shoved it onto everybody else's front lawn and didn't do anything whether it's the federal government whether it's the prime minister for poking the bear whether it's the mayor of ottawa for not getting the police in and in there and, and taking command of this or the the, the head of the, the police service who, who ignored all the information and intelligence that was coming in and then all while the prime minister runs and hides. And then, you know, okay, now I'll come in and save the day. Like in housing, like in population, was warned two years ago what was happening. Two years ago and didn't do anything. And now all of a sudden, boom, we're doing this, we're doing that. Well, let's do something before the problem happens including poking a pile of truckers, then running away and leaving it to the local police department to try to handle on federal lands. It's a joke. Compared to what's going on in the rest of the world, it's a joke. And I don't think we've learned a damn thing since all of this happened. I bet you, and we'll ask later on in the show, do you feel confident that if this was to happen again, we could lickety-split, you know, take care of it, like they did at the borders, like they did at the provincial legislatures. What the hell happened on Parliament Hill? I don't know. It all kinds, kind of points to one guy who's nowhere to be found after the fact. Norman Jewison, the acclaimed and versatile Canadian-born director whose Hollywood flicks range from one end of the spectrum to the other, uh, passed away, ripe old age of 97. To talk more about him and what he knew of him, Bill Brio is with us, TV critic, author, and is here now. Bill, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Doing well, Scott. How are you? 
I'm doing very well. You know, I, I think what's interesting when you look at somebody who has been in the business as long as Norman Jewison was and lives to a ripe uh, age of 97, boy, that's a versatile career. That is someone who has adapted to what is ever going on in the world. He saw a lot, and uh, yeah, I think he really enjoyed being alive, and uh, he had a very cool job that he was very, very good at. And, you know, you have, you can look hard for people who did not like Norma Jewison, but good luck. I, Having met him a few times, uh, just a real special guy. Talk about his uh, contribution, because obviously he was, uh, you know, he's world acclaimed. Everybody knows who he was, but always came back, always helped out the Canadian industry. Yeah, I mean, it was his idea to create the Canadian Film Centre. Started off as just sort of at a party at the Festival of Festivals, you know, back at the Toronto International Film Festival. He would have a barbecue and he got talking to people and uh, put his money where his mouth is. And now... They've got, I think, around 2,000 alumni over the 36 years that the Canadian Film Centre has been in existence. He would speak every September during the festival. I, I'd go hear him. Always very passionate and uh, a big, big supporter of young Canadian talent. Uh, and it was all very genuine. And I saw that firsthand when I was young and I had uh, made a couple of little short films at U of T. I was lucky to actually sit with him for a while, and uh, he could not have been kinder. Uh, his big advice was, don't go to film school. Uh, basically, drive a cab. <laughs> go, <laughs> go do something. Pick up life experience. Do anything. Do not try and tell a story on film until you're 30 or 35. That is fascinating. I was going to ask you, tell us about your encounters with him, but that is probably, think of that as, as a UFT, or as a young student, rather, being a film student and having him to talk to about the industry and your work. Yeah, I was very lucky. I was asked, I had a professor at U of T, Gino Matteo, who was head of the film department. He knew I used to do the editorial cartoons for the varsity, so he asked me to do a caricature of... Uh, Norman Jewison, which was presented to him. So that's how I got to meet him. But, uh, you know, his advice was great, but it was bad for me because unless you have <laughs> Jewison's drive and ambition and talent, <laughs> being told to just wait a while, life gets in the way, you know? So I, I think it worked for him. And he started out at CBC as a young man directing uh, all, you know, everything, everything, yeah. Uh, you know, uh, dramas, a lot of actors, their first director there would have been Pinson. And then he did TV and uh, Judy Garland. He directed her specials and um, Tony Curtis liked his work. He was a guest and got him his first job directing a little film called 40 Pounds of Trouble. And it all took off from there. Uh, I remember you over the years when we've talked uh, and such in, in your uh, brushes with greatness and celebrity talking about these barbecues. Expand a little bit on that and, and what that vibe was like. Yeah, when you go in September during the festival, there's a um, it used to be just called the the Tiff Barbecue, but it was it's the Canadian Film Center as an event, and they have a lot of alumni back. It's at the old E.P. Taylor Estate, Winfield Farms, which is the CFC's headquarters now, and it's a fundraiser really. So they would have people, donors, people. They would raffle off stuff, and there'd be hundreds of people on this back lawn where. Northern Dancer once trotted, you know, it was owned by E.P. Taylor, the wow. great, the great horse. And uh, Jewison would be there on the stony steps of this old mansion and he would give this pep talk. I saw him two years ago or a year and a half ago when he was 96 
he was still kicking ass and um just you know so much power and energy and um passion and that's what you need i think to be a look at he made 24 films that's 15 more than quentin tarantino so in order to get there without that university education you're going to need one you're going to need one heck of a drive i think so and he had it but look at also as you pointed out at the beginning this guy made fiddler on the roof but he also made rollerball you know, yeah, he made Moonstruck, yeah. but he also yeah. made The Russians Are Coming. The Russians Are Coming. Like, the, the, a soldier story is nothing like, you know, Agnes of God. The, every film was different. You know, usually James Cameron is always making uh, the same kind of movie or, uh, you know, but but Jewison, he could do anything. And uh, he was chosen to do, the, the Hollywood moguls wanted him for the, um, the, the, um, if I was a rich man, uh, the um, fiddler on the roof, yeah, because they thought he was Jewish because his name was Norman Jewison. He was not Jewish, and he had to at the board meeting. He, they're all we were so happy we have you and a toast to Norman. And he said, "Look, guys, I got to tell you, I'm not Jewish." <laughs> and what an they, incredible they story! And they said, "You know what? We want you anyway." Uh, you know, oh so, uh, man, we want you anyway. There you go. Yeah, you know, oh I mean, my goodness! Probably not phrased quite like that, but yes. he had to face as a young man growing up in Toronto. A lot of kids thought he was Jewish, and back then, you know, you got beat up because you were in a minority, and so he knew racial intolerance, and that's why he made films like A Soldier Story. And in the heat of the night, uh, he was very passionate about uh, civil rights. Wow. Uh, incredible stories, Bill. And I remember them from years ago. Bill Brio with his TV critic and author uh, and Hobnobbin with the stars. Uh, great stuff. Thanks so much for sharing. Be well. You too, Scott. All right. Uh, you can hear this guy every Saturday morning, along with yours truly, uh, hosting uh, Planning Your Financial Future and a good one this coming weekend, too, uh, with uh, a pretty cool guest. I'm sure Don will talk about that. But uh, Stats Canada says the majority of Canadians now have more debt than savings. What are savings? What does that include? And, you know, the most important question, and we see this, and it's odd that uh, we're living sort of with a, a, a far left socialism type government, yet the wealth gap seems to be widening, uh, which is something they fight hard to prevent. Let's bring, uh, bring in Don Fox, executive financial consultant with the Fox, uh, Fox Group, IG Private Wealth Management, and here now. Don, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Hey, Scott. Good to hear from you. Doing very well. Thanks. So what are your thoughts when you hear, you know, stats can, and I know as you've commented before uh, in the media, it's a lot of more negative news than positive uh, news. Now having more debt than savings, what does that mean? And does that mean cash flow? Does that mean not saving enough for retirement? How do you break that down? You know, that's a great question. And and I know they, they look and they try to shrink the wealth gap and Canada does have a very large middle class. And, uh, and it's, and they make very good wages, uh, but it does still come down to, you know, and this isn't for everybody, but it still comes down to money management. So if you bringing in a hundred thousand a year as a, as a, as a household and you spend 105,000 a year, you go into debt, obviously. And if you're only spending 90,000 a year, you go into the savings mode. And so, yes, you're seeing, uh, that wealth gap persists. I've been doing this 38 years and it doesn't matter when it was back in 85 or now 2024. It's always a the wealthiest hold the lion's share of the wealth. And currently, uh, the top 20% of, of Canadians 
the top wealthiest 20% hold about 67% of all the wealth in Canada. And you go to the bottom 20% is negative 0.02. So they're actually, that whole 20% is in debt, you know, if you add up all their net worth. So, you know, and, and again, maybe, you know, there's a lot of reasons for it. But there's also, there's two parts of it. One may just be circumstance and one may be, um, you know, how they deal with money and the choices they make. Uh, considering where we are post-pandemic world, the realities of inflation and affordability, do you see that gap widening? Is, is, the, is the, middle class, the middle class shrinking in your mind? Uh, the poor really get hurt. The ones that uh, when, when prices go up yeah. 8%, it hurts their bottom line more than anybody. And if rent goes up, because um, let's face it, most of the, you know, say the poorest Canadians do not own a property. And so, yes, so if they don't have the property tax increases that we've been hearing about, but they have been getting the rent increases. So, yes, uh, when prices of food go up more, it hurts them more because they rate, let's say they're just breaking even. Um, their wages aren't going up with inflation versus somebody that has money or maybe they're even saving money. Well, if you're saving money and prices go up, maybe you just save less money and it doesn't hurt you as much. And so if you do go into debt, a perfect example, if you have a carry on a debt and let's say you're now the debt's costing you 10%, which is actually not bad right now with the prime lending rate at 7.2 versus somebody that's saving that money per month and they're getting 10%. Right. Well, that's a 20% difference. Automatically, the wealthier people are going up by 10% and the poorer people are going down by 10%. And that creates that gap we, we see. So yes, it's uh, it's part of it is is simply money management. And part of it may be just because their earnings, uh, they can't keep up with the price of uh, the price of goods, services, rent, gas, et cetera. Um, is it any wonder the younger generation, Generation Z, which is those under 30 years old, are, are pessimistic? How would you attack this if you were in that age bracket? <laughs> That's a, you know what, I got millennial kids and you know yeah. what, uh, you're living it, Scott, you know, <laughs> they're, they, they, you know, it wasn't too long ago we were saying the millennials weren't going to be doing very much and they weren't going to contribute very much and they had a, uh, they had a silver spoon in their mouth and it was they had it too easy. And now they're the largest group and they are adding the most to the economy now. Uh, mm-hmm. So it's amazing how times change. I I can't speak for any specific generation, but once they get a job and start earning money, it comes back to it's funny how they often revert to what their parents did. Mm-hmm. And the conversations and all those times you thought they weren't listening, it turns out they were, okay? And and perhaps they were, now they're starting to save. They're talking about RSPs. They're talking about, oh, that's too high of an interest. Or maybe I shouldn't buy that car. I have to buy a, a lesser car because I can't afford it. So all the talk about what they were going to do, but when the rubber meets the road of an actual budget, uh, you, you find they're actually you know, fairly disciplined. And I hope the same goes to the next generation Z, as you, as you discussed. Uh, housing, obviously, uh, a huge issue, uh, as well. Well, everything is, it's affordability, but, <laughs> but clearly we're in a housing shortage. There is a housing crisis where, you know, we're growing faster than we have houses being built and such. Uh, do you see this say, I don't know, and I'm asking you to look in the crystal ball that you uh, have on your desk there, but is it like, are, are, do you see this in five years? We will see a measurable difference in 10 years. 
we'll see a measurable difference where we have caught up. Because this is really in, and you know, the guest that you're having on this week on the show on Saturday morning is going to talk about this. It really is a basic supply and demand issue. If you don't build enough, you create a shortage, you create a crisis. Yeah, we're very fortunate to have Philip Peterson, our chief investment strategist, on for this Saturday. So I'm really looking forward to that. But you're absolutely right. Um, he will be the first to acknowledge it's supply and demand. And when you have an immigration policy that is increasing the population by 1.2 million, and they're only increasing housing by half a million, where are the other 700,000 people are going to live? So on one side, you're going to have to say, okay, well, that should increase prices. Um, but it also has to mean people want to sell, but then you got interest rates that are hitting, you know, 5% to 6% for a five-year mortgage right now. And the prime lending rate, if they have a line of credit, is at 7.2. If it's at prime, uh, most people are not at the prime lending rate. So that's the, if you will, the governor on the housing right now. And right now that that lever is winning. That lever is the high interest rates are now hurting the affordability of um, houses more so. And so you're actually seeing the housing prices drop right now. And you're and you're witnessing probably in the last half of 23 was one of the worst housing markets for sales. Um, mm. The prices did also drop about uh, somewhere between 10, 15%, depending on where you lived and what type of house you have and location, all the other things that matter. But in, and generally speaking, you saw a decline. And you got to be careful when you see when you're talking to a real estate agent and they say, well, the average house was sold in three weeks. Well, what they don't take into account is when it gets relisted, it's like a reset button. And so they don't, and then it gets sold after one week after that. It was only on the market for one week after the relist. And they don't talk about the previous. Um, also, when they say, well, it's only sold so much under list. Well, that's also interesting because <laughs> if the list price keeps going down, then it's uh than the price. So there's some, I'd say the stats aren't as accurate as I'd like to see personally. And and, and unfortunately, it's also the real estate companies that come up with the stats. So I don't know how much they're audited. So that being said, yes, the housing issue is not going away, high interest rates, and people are going to be creative. They're going to have to you know, live at home longer, maybe create a basement apartment, what have you, maybe more renovation money. But uh, if once interest rates start to fall, I would suggest they'd have to drop about 2% to make a real sizable difference in the housing market right now. Mm. Don Fox with us, executive financial consultant with the Fox Group, IG Private Wealth Management, Saturday mornings planning your financial future. Thank you, Don, and be well. Yeah, thank you, Scott. Anytime. Appreciate it. Let's bring in Franco Terrazano, Canadian Taxpayers Federation Federal Director. Uh, they're calling on the federal government to end its tax on tax following today's parliamentary budget officer report showing removing the GST paid on the carbon tax would save taxpayers hundreds of millions every year. Franco, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Hey, thanks for having me on today. I'm guessing, Franco, that they would say, yeah, it would save the taxpayers hundreds of millions of dollars a year, but our government would lose hundreds of millions of dollars every year. What's your response? And I would say, I would say, hey, how about you stop blowing money on things like an $8 million <laughs> barn at Rideau Hall? You know what I mean? Like, look, hmm. there has been no stronger, let's call it fiscal hawk, than the Canadian Taxpayers Federation and me here in Ottawa. But come on, you know, people are struggling to afford just fueling up their car on the way to work. Uh, people are struggling with the rolling in uh, heating bills, especially right now across Canada uh, during this cold snap over the last couple of weeks. I mean, look, we, we have to realize 
that this federal government can and should balance the budget by ending its bloated bureaucracy, by ending um, all of the waste that we've seen coming from the federal government spending. And it could do all of that and provide some simple relief, like ending this pernicious tax on tax. Um, carbon tax, um, uh, I've said many times it's a fundraiser for the liberals, or is it needed to do what they need to do to save the planet? Well, look, the, the, the reason I think that the carbon tax is plummeting, the, the support for carbon taxes are plummeting in the polls is twofold. I mean, number one is the obvious, right? People are struggling with decades high inflation. Uh, people can't afford to pay a carbon tax on top of it, which makes it more expensive for you to fuel up your car, which makes it more expensive for you to keep the heat on during the winter. And it makes it more expensive every time you go to the grocery store. That's reason number one. But reason number two at the heart of your question is people are understanding that, you know, making it more expensive to fuel up in Canada does absolutely nothing to actually reduce emissions in the world. Right. Like a carbon tax here on Canada isn't going to reduce emissions in the United States where there is no carbon tax. A carbon tax here in Canada isn't going to reduce emissions in, in places like China, India, or Russia, where, where are the big countries that are producing these GHG emissions. So twofold, the carbon tax is making life more expensive, and the double whammy is not helping the global environmental issues. Is that resonating with Canadians, Franco? Because it seems, you know, uh, we don't mind driving a gas guzzler because I'm paying the carbon tax, so I'm doing my part. No, I don't think so. I mean, poll after poll shows the support for the carbon tax is falling. I mean, uh, there's no wonder why Trudeau even had to do that carbon tax carve out that predominantly helps Atlantic Canadians. Because people are getting frustrated. People are like, holy moly. I mean, the cost of everything seems like it's going through the roof. Could you at least give me a break? Now, look, I, I firmly believe Trudeau should completely scrap his carbon tax. Uh, he may never be willing to do that. But at the very least, he could provide relief today by ending this tax on tax, right? So here's yeah, how the tax yeah. on tax works. The federal government adds up all of its per liter fuel tax and then taxes those taxes with its GST, right? And this tax on tax, the GST on the carbon tax alone, is costing Canadian taxpayers uh, about 500 million bucks this year. The GST on the carbon tax alone will end up costing Canadians a billion dollars annually by 2030. So look, I think the government needs to completely scrap its carbon tax. But even if it doesn't do that, uh, the no-brainer here would be to listen to the PBO report findings and save people a bunch of money just by taking the GST off of the carbon tax. Uh, there's a um, uh, PM's got a retreat going on in the, in the next couple of days. Do you think this is on the on the docket? <laughs> Isn't that crazy? I mean, they're they're in Montreal, right? They're probably racking up a huge taxpayer tab at this cabinet retreat. We'll get the documents on that, folks. Don't worry. But look, they don't need to be spending a ton of money trying to figure out how to save people money, right? I mean, making life more affordable for Canadians shouldn't be as hard as solving Einstein's theory of relativity, right? The simple solution here is just to stop taking so much money from Canadians' pockets, right? So obviously we would say, scrap the carbon tax, but even if they're not willing to do that, there's small things the government can do to make life more affordable. Step number one, don't raise the carbon tax like they're planning to on April 1. Step number two, end this tax on tax. Step number three, 
extend the same carbon tax that they gave to mostly Atlantic Canadians or predominantly Atlantic Canadians and take the carbon tax off of everyone's home heating bill. And what? Step number four is finally pass the original Bill C-234 that would remove the carbon tax on natural gas and propane used on farms. That's making it more expensive for farmers to grow our food and for Canadian families to buy the food. So look, those are four easy steps that the federal government could do today, essentially, to make life more affordable for Canadians. And neither one of those is is cutting the tax completely, which is fascinating. Uh, thank you, Franco. Franco Terrazano, Canadian Taxpayers Federation Federal Director. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. As often happens when we have Dr. Ian Lee on, uh, we're set to talk about something and then something else breaks and we have to squeeze it in too. So we'll try to get everything in we can. Uh, Ian Lee with his associate professor at Sprott School of Business, Carleton University, talking about the cap on international students and uh, the judge's ruling that the Freedom Convoy uh, violated the Charter of Rights and was unreasonable. Ian, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I'm doing very well. Thank you. All right. First, as being uh, the, someone who resides, resides in Ottawa, you experienced this. What are your thoughts on what the judge found out, the federal court and the government going to appeal? Um. I am not a constitutional lawyer, and I want to disclose that. So in case anyone's listening, yes, I've lived in Ottawa all my life. Uh, I did my master's and my PhD in public policy um, and studying Supreme Court decisions that, about the division of powers between the federal and provincial governments over the years. But I did comment on this because I live in Ottawa, and I'm only uh, like a kilometer away from where the protests were. And I did say on uh, the local radio at the time, uh, I thought that the courts would ultimately overturn this, uh, the emergency powers invocation, because I did not believe that there was an emergency. And I'm, I'm a kilometer, 1.5 kilometers. And I drove down there, not right into the area. I did not participate. I drove about four blocks, five blocks. I went to the edge of the, of where the police had coordinated off. And the idea that there was a, an apprehended insurrection or a violent revolution was just preposterous. Nonsense. I I actually, <laughs> a couple of protesters came in onto my street to meet one of the people that they knew on my street. It was a bunch <laughs> of angry, disgruntled, upset, working class people from across Canada. And, and they were angry and they did things that were, they parked their trucks illegally. I fully acknowledge that. They should have towed those trucks away on day one. Yeah. They should have penalized them. They should have ticketed them. But it was not, this was not the Russian Revolution of 1917 or the communist revolution of 1948. It was a protest. We've had much more violent protests in this country where people have destroyed property and, and so forth. And so I did not believe uh, and you know, that this was uh, an apprehended insurrection. This was not January 6th and Donald mm -hmm. Trump. And, 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 and so I didn't ever think it came close to that bar. I thought it was a, I hate to sound like a Marxist now, I thought it was a classic class struggle. The people in the downtown, and I live right next to the downtown. It's a very upper middle class neighborhood. And it's the Glebe. It's like Rosedale in Toronto or the beaches. Okay. And there were a lot of people in the upper class, upper middle class, that were really upset by these working class people with their trucks, you know, smoking cigarettes and smoking dope and all that. And they were, it was, I, I listened to it every day of neighbors and so forth. And it was just priceless. I mean, it was priceless because the class was just 
the dripping with class contempt for these people mm. that we that they saw many of them saw as a bunch of losers and it had nothing to do with violent revolution so i didn't think uh, that the court would uphold it uh government uh government minister leblanc says uh refers to this the stash of weapons and ammunitions that they found but that was i believe at the alberta border and the borders i think were cleared before or on their way to being cleared before the emergencies act was declared and then uh the justice minister saying that well we had judge rollo on this but that wasn't binding it was just the committee that was set up and he admitted right. himself that he wasn't given all the facts that's right uh, that's exactly true and again you know, you can quote, uh, you know, as he's doing, you know, they found some guns in Alberta. Therefore, there's a national crisis in Canada. Uh, I just uh, it's just such a stretch. And I'm speaking as an ordinary citizen. Yes. Uh, but I was, as I keep saying, I live about 1.5 kilometers from Parliament Hill in the Glebe. And for those who aren't from Ottawa, the Glebe is smack dab next to Parliament Hill. And there's very senior yeah. public servants that live in the Glebe. A lot of national journalists live in the Glebe. Medical doctors, because the two hospitals are nearby. The houses are anywhere from a million and a half to $5 million in value, which by the standards of Ottawa is really, really expensive, okay? This is a very upper middle class neighborhood. Very upper. And you look at the income, the average incomes, they're off the charts. There are people in the top 2% of the population of income. So it's a very Tony neighborhood. And they were upset. They were really yeah. angry. I heard all kinds of neighbors. Or we get rid of these hoodlums, you know? Why don't they just drag them away and put them in jail? And um, these are same people who will support blowing up of a pipeline as long as it's 10,000 or 5,000 kilometers away <laughs> in northern British Columbia. And hey, that's okay. That's cool. Okay. So as I said, there was a lot of, uh, I thought it was just a lot of a class uh, dispute, you know, sort of working lower, middle mm. class, working class, uh, and the people in the, the good burgers. And the um, people in the upper uh, class, upper middle class, were upset. Yeah. And um, and uh, so you know, and there was a lot of heat because remember, there's a lot of senior public servants and politicians yeah. that live in the Glebe. I should have mentioned that there are senators galore in the Glebe. There's cabinet ministers in the Glebe. This is their home. This is their home. And they were invaded, as they like to put it. And I heard this word all the time. I laugh. They were invaded by these people. I said, hey, they're just citizens, working class citizens. Some of them out of work. They're not revolutionaries. They're not. This isn't, you know, Stalin and Lenin in Russia. They're just upset people who are angry at the government. That's not a revolution. Uh, the appeal to the Supreme Court, does that just kick it down the road? Uh, I know you're not a, a legal scholar, but what are your thoughts? Well, I think that Mr. Trudeau is buying time because he can't just accept this decision because he bet yeah. the farm on the invocation. And he swore up and down. There's an enormous amount of tape on the record, videotape, of him on the record telling us how terrible this was and how violent it was and how horrible it was. And Canada was on the edge of civilizational collapse. He, he can't say, I accept the decision of the court. He's got to bet the farm again and go to the Supreme Court and pray and pray that they win because he knows that Pierre Polyev in the next election is going to come after him on this issue big time very big time and say this is the uh, this is the coup de gras that says it cements everything i'm saying about the failures of the liberal government so it's not just about their opinion at the time of this i think it has huge consequences for the 2025 election and we never even got to talk about this the cap on uh students international Which students i really but wanted will, to talk about i know no we will have you back and do that within a couple of days don't you worry dr ian lee with his associate professor sprott school of business carleton university will return thank you ian be well thank you thank you 
It's Hamilton Today, 900 CHML in Hamilton. We're coming back. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Lots going on on the world stage, whether it's uh, engagement in the Red Sea affecting supply chains, uh, whether it is the Biden administration and, Netan- and Netanyahu's government finding themselves at odds over the future of Gaza. There is lots going on. We didn't even bring up uh, Ukraine and Russia. Uh, let's bring in Elliot Tepper, Emeritus Professor of Political Science, Carleton University. He's here now. Elliot, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Oh, thank you. Same to, same to you, Scott. But, you know, how well is the world? I know, exactly. There's so many, any one of these issues would be enough uh, to, to keep us all occupied. I want to ask you, Elliot, what are your thoughts on Israel's reaction to the two-state solution? Because really, we've been hearing a lot about that, obviously, of late, for obvious reasons, that this was the way forward. However, it doesn't seem that any of the parties really involved in this want that. Your thoughts on is Israel's reaction to the two-state, uh, which they don't support? Yes. There's a lot made of this. The uh... It's gone public. Obviously, a lot of this was, you know, under the under the radar until now, but just bilaterally, keeping in mind the relationship between Israel and the U.S. is extremely close. Mm-hmm. In fact, it's even contractual in a sense. The Congress has uh, has passed legislation saying, you know, Israel is always going to have munitions needed to keep it ahead of the game. So, uh, what's going on is real puzzlement. And really bafflement, I would say, as to what to do next in that region. The Israelis are saying, basically, you're asking us to put faith in the people who are presently still rewarding terrorists, uh, and they have a fundamental disagreement over the nature, the actual nature of the Palestinian Authority. And that takes us into a much bigger conversation as who they are. They were, after all, the governing authority in Gaza. They got yeah, they got booted out in a coup, a very bloody military coup. Hamas defeated them on the battlefield and kicked them out. Uh, and meanwhile, their current leader, uh, Abu, <laughs> Abu Mazen, uh, I, I think it's now his 17th or 18th year of his four-year electoral term. What the U.S. is talking about is kind of uh, difficult to put your finger on because they're talking about a rejuvenated, and a reinvigorated Palestinian authority coming over into Gaza, where there's no particular uh, sign that the Gazans would welcome them in any in any event. The Israelis are saying, uh, look, we've just been attacked, and you want us to give up security guarantees. A commentator in the U.S. who's been involved in negotiations in the past has put it this way, Scott, he said, what, what the U.S. sees when they look at the Palestinian Authority is Costa Rica. You know, a nice, gentle uh, democracy with mm. no army. Uh, what Israel sees is North Korea, a totalitarian state armed to the teeth and hostile. So they have quite different visions of what the, what the PA is capable of doing. Meanwhile, both Egypt, it looks like Egypt and Israel are saying the people of Gaza should be governed by the people of Gaza. And that's, that means we need to find people who were basically technically technocrats not affiliated with Hamas. Nobody actually, to be honest, uh, on all sides has a clue really what to do with Gaza. Nobody really wants them. Egypt won't take them. Uh, There was talk about a multinational Arab force moving in uh, to maintain the peace. Nobody's picking that up. The Saudis uh, are a key player here. 
what's going to happen in the future was, and we framed it this way, I think you and I, when we talked about it, is that uh, what's going to happen in the future is, has been changed considerably by this attack that really behind everything we see is Iran's goals and they are being carried out. Uh, this, this dispute on, on Gaza, you know, US and PA, uh, that can carry on because again, nobody really knows what to do about it. But really the big story here is that uh, in this theater, the Middle Eastern theater, Iran has some very clear goals. They, they want to push the West out. That means us, as along with the, along with the U.S. Mm -hmm. and all of the allies. They want to push the Saudis down. They, they, they're in a long-term, you know, thousand-year civil war, basically, within Islam. But they're in a, in a contemporary struggle for dominance and regional hegemony between the Saudi-led bloc of Sunnis and uh, the Shia-led bloc by, by Iran. And Iran is on a roll. Uh, by the actions of their ally, their proxy, Hamas, they really have derailed the Saudi intentions. Uh, and they really, of course, want the Israelis gone, and they're making good progress. Basically, Iran is activating its, its proxies all around the region, while themselves paying no cost, Scott. Mm. Uh, they're hiding behind their proxies, who are paying a heavy cost. Uh, and uh, much like Hamas is hiding behind civilian civilian populations in Gaza. So obviously, uh, Israel doesn't want the two-state solution. Uh, the Middle East isn't stepping up to take anybody in or create some sort of solution in this. It, it keeps pointing back to Palestinians and their relationship with Hamas. And until that separation is made, it sounds like there's not going to be a lot of support. Is that accurate? Uh, everything about the place is so complex. Yeah. Uh, yes, of course, that's accurate. We, um, there's voices, very strong voices inside Hamas, uh, inside Gaza, saying, uh, calling Hamas names. <laughs> so they, they say, look at the disaster you brought upon us. And we should keep in mind this is way broader than the bilateral dispute, so to speak, between Gaza and Israel, or even more broadly, the Palestinians however one defines, you know, the nature of the dispute in that context, because the West Bank is certainly not the same thing as Gaza. But much more widely, there's Hezbollah in Jordan, and uh, the Iranian people have tried over and over again to throw out, basically, to rise up and replace the, the theocratic regime. The theocratic regime, uh, the Ayatollah's regime, really, we should remind ourselves, changed policy. Uh, there's no deep-seated structural reason that Israel and Iran have for being enemies. Uh, this was a, a, a choice in 1979 to switch gears, because before that, in fact, Israel and Turkey uh, and Iran had good relations. So the, the Iranian regime has this very clear set of goals. Uh, they are pursuing them, and they are pursuing them much more broadly than the Palestinian issue. They're pursuing it in terms of Hezbollah and Lebanon. And the people of Lebanon are paying already a very high cost for uh, Hezbollah's role in their domestic politics. 80% of the population apparently is at the poverty line or below the poverty line. Meanwhile, Hezbollah continues to be funded uh, quite nicely by, by Iran. And of course, the people of Iran are paying such a heavy cost. We just passed the year mark where there was yet the latest uprising, led by young women, uh, girls, an attempt to replace that regime. They crushed it. 
they saw it. They pressed the opposition at home. They've animated their proxies around the around the region, which pushes back against Saudi Arabia very effectively. And now Saudi Arabia is saying, yes, we still want to normalize with Israel, but it has to now have a, and they're putting it much more strongly, a verified uh, non, uh, a path to statehood for the Palestinians, which can't be gone back on. That's much stronger than they were saying before. So we are in a situation where basically Iran is paying no cost for activities and they are stepping up their own. Uh, they now have hmm. stepped forth and actually attacked, attacked American interest in, in Syria, American interest in Iraq, and they've even attacked their neighbor, Pakistan, using their own military in this case, not relying on proxies. So I think they see themselves as emboldened. Uh, the West is making it clear, including in the case of the Red Sea, uh, we do not want to widen this war. And I think what... Uh, Iran is hearing is, oh, well, if you don't want to widen the war, that gives us a lot of latitude mm. to push in a really dangerous and reckless way in this volatile region. Always a fascinating discussion. Elliot Tepper with his emeritus professor of political science, Carleton University. And that's just with one issue. Elliot, as always, we'll chat again. Be well. Uh, thank you. Same to you, Scott. Difficult time for many city councils across the country, across the province. Uh, obviously, in a post-pandemic world, affordability going through the roof. Everybody is struggling with budgets, whether it's you at your house or any city council across the land. And Hamilton's no different. Uh, heading towards a, uh, are they heading towards a budget stalemate? Now the police budget has become a factor in all of this. How do you move forward, keep it balanced, and keep the lights on at the same time? Let's bring in Henry Jasek, Professor Emeritus, Political Science, McMaster University, here now. Henry, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am. Thank you, Scott. You know, it must be tough to govern at any level, whether it's municipal, provincial, federal, after uh, something like a global pandemic or a war. Uh, it's not easy sledding, is it? Oh, no, that's for sure. And I, I think we could see there there's certain people who have to ma- manage certain things and they're, they're, they they seem to be saying, I'm, I'm getting out of here. Uh, and, you know, for example, the McMaster University president, uh, who a lot of people wanted to stay on, thought he did a great job uh, with, with budgets. And he says, well, I'll, I'm retiring uh, in the next year or so. And he's yeah. out of there because I think he thinks he recognizes things are going to be harder and harder for, you know, running something like in a university. Uh, obviously, Hamilton City Council dealing with the expenses in order to pay that. You either have to raise taxes or cut services. Where do you think this is going? The, the police uh, budget is a part of this as well. Uh, uh, is it, are we going to settle somewhere in the middle? But even the middle seems high. Well, the middle, first of all, people um, who've been following this, and I remember, I know there's a lot of numbers involved, but the big number that people started hearing, well, one of the big numbers was, uh, last the fall, when Ted McMeekin, a counselor, said we got to uh, hold everything to four percent, and given the numbers that were being talked about that to- uh, at that time, that actually sounded pretty reasonable. And uh, the the cutting so far of a, of a budget by the financial people at the at the city has uh, got it down to about seven point nine percent, which is of course pretty pretty high, uh, fairly high compared to the 4%. 4%. But they're saying, well, listen, we have to cover not only uh, what we're responsible for, we have to cover for things that the province used to take care of, 
but we but we really have to take care of them. So we got to pick that up. And uh, but then the problem that will confuse people is that uh, there are different estimates of what actually the province uh, is not covering. And so you have about three different numbers. You have the financial people who are pro- saying that uh, basically we, we probably will wind up at, at a total now putting together both the city and plus what they have to pay for the that the for the province uh with province downloading was is about 7.6 we've got uh Ted McBeacon who came up with the idea that only 4 4% of the city um budget uh, needs to be increased but adding on what he thinks is the you know provincial the provincial amount we're down to 6.7 but the mayor on the other hand says no uh, the the uh, city has to pick up a you know a whole lot of what the province has done so that her her uh, my 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 calculation she's looking at a, a figure of 9.2 but i think basically ted mcmeekin's uh, number 6.7 is probably where we're going to wind up it looks like we've got about eight councillors that that want to follow what he's doing but as i said he originally when he originally said the four he didn't tell people he was going to divide between uh, what hmm. the city was responsible for and what the province used to be paying for. Uh, you know, it doesn't matter whether it's uh, pre-pandemic, post-pandemic. Uh, the same stories come out of city council every year. How are they going to do this? How are they going to manage the budget? How are they going to uh, do what needs to be done, whether it's maintenance or, or infrastructure or so or so forth? Uh, and obviously now that's complicated by the affordability, affordability issues mm-hmm. in a post-pandemic world. That being said, are you, you know, compared to what we've had, are you confident that this group of councillors can do something responsible here that tries to keep both sides of this fence happy? In other words, doing what's economically uh, responsible and yet, you know, trying to bridge the gap between that and the services. Well, the, the, yeah, being resp- responsible is, is, is a hard, depending on where you're looking at it. And, and you're right, you, you've asked the question earlier on, is the, is the police budget going to be cut? Because, yeah, there was a big increase in the police budget. You have a, some councillors, but not a majority, who want to cut back on, on that. Uh, so maybe a little bit of that will happen. But I think uh, one of the, what's likely to happen is that the, there's a, probably a majority of the councillors are going to say, that part of what we were, you know, going to spend, uh, and the province was going to spend, was increasing uh, things uh, like uh, renovating our hospitals, and that we could probably get by uh, for a year or so without doing that. And I have a feeling that's probably where the councillors are going to wind out, wind up. In the meantime, they'll all be putting pressure on the province to, to you know, basically uh, come back and give more money or give give money that they used to give. So it's uh, that's where I think we're going to wind up. But it's, but people are going to look at 6.7 and say, hey, that's not close enough to the 4%. Only got a little, uh, a few seconds left, Henry, but I got to ask you this. And uh, what the Toronto mayor is doing by saying our taxes are going up, say, 10%, but they'll go up 16 unless we get more from the federal government to handle the, the encampment and the refugee situation. What, what's your thoughts on that strategy? Well, I think that's going to go down as well. But but I think the, uh, the Toronto mayor has really a lot more uh, leverage because, you know, uh, she basically she will, you know, has a lot. A lot of people in, in the city of Toronto believe that, you know, they're not getting a good deal, uh, a proper deal from the city, from the province. 
uh, whether that's true or yeah, not. Yeah, but everybody but tries to bring the province in on the. Everybody tries to bring the province in on this, Henry. That's but right. it's not that's between right. the province. Between the, it's between the feds and and Olivia Chow. And Olivia's made that notable. And and but it looks like the the feds keep trying to distract it to the province. But what do you think? Because she's not holding the province hostage. She's holding the feds hostage. Yeah. Well, the thing is that the the, the basically the I think the uh, the pro, you know most of the people will figure that the city bu- budgets basically. Are when when they do go up, uh, are more likely to be the responsibility of the provincial or rather than the federal government. And we see right now we've got in Toronto we have all the uh, people running the rural and northern uh, municipalities, and they're right. Uh, you know they've come to Toronto this week to really tell you know the province, hey, we're 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 about to go under, and so that's you know that's basically. Where these where these mayors and the mayors and the leaders of all these communities uh, feel, and uh, they think they've got the people of the, you know, in their municipalities on their side, and uh, you know, you may, you know, I'd like to see the federal government to give more money, certainly to to the municipalities. All right, Henry, I'm going to have to but catch you off. I got to catch off, yeah. Henry, because we're right out of time. Henry Jason with us, Professor Emeritus, Political Science, McMaster University. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CXML. All right, this just came out this afternoon. Uh, the federal court justice, uh, Richard Mosley, ruled it was unreasonable for the liberal, liberal government to use the Emergencies Act to quell the Freedom Convoy, violating uh, Canadians' Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Christian Leprec with his pr- uh, professor of both the Royal Military College of Canada, Queen's University, and fellow at the Macdonald-Laurier Institute. Christian, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Yes, indeed. Good afternoon, Scott. Are you surprised by this ruling, Christian? Not really. So I think there had, uh, and and the Rulo Commission um, had left open that door by saying that, you know, reasonable people could come to different conclusions applying different parameters. And so the federal court here uh, applied uh, parameters of constitutionality, of reasonableness, and um, that in the context of the charter, because the charter allows, I think, like provisionally some rights to be overwritten if the government can make sort of a, a reasonable case. And so it appears that both on the uh, black-white in terms of constitutionality of the decision and the reasonableness of whether it was reasonable and necessary to override these charter rights using the Emergencies Act. Uh, so on both those provisions, um, uh, Justice Mosley ruled that that was uh, that that uh, that the decision that the decision made by the government uh, was not defensible, and the judge itself is notable here because uh, this is one of the judges who hmm. uh, is security clear, who understands national security provisions, who has a lot of experience. So this would be a judge who has regular experience with agencies, um, uh, security intelligence agencies, uh, law enforcement coming to him with warrant, with warrants asking to sign off on, on provisions that ultimately violate people's charter rights, but of course within the framework of the rule of law. Mm. So this is a judge who has extensive experience in the uh, ruling that he rendered here uh, in terms of assessing 
what may be necessary, reasonable, and constitutional when it comes to national security issues. You were talking about the Rolo Commission. Uh, Christia Freeland said she's going to appeal this. The Justice Minister pointed to the Rolo Commission, Commission saying, well, it says we were justified. However, as you pointed out with this judge and with the court of law, um, n- none of that would have been binding as it is in court. And not only that, uh, as you mentioned also, uh, Rolo had commented that he didn't get all of the information uh, in this commission that you would get in a court of law. Uh, plus, on top of that, the government uh, affairs minister, LeBlanc, you know, talking about the mass cache of weapons that were there, but they were actually at the Coots border with the United States and Alberta. So what is your thought to the reaction of the government on this? Well, the short, the long and short takeaway is that the federal court ruled uh, that the decision was unconstitutional and the decision was uh, not a legally defensive uh, uh, decision in terms of reasonableness. But what the Rulo Commission ruled is that effectively the government made a political decision and yeah. that uh, politically on the information and advice that the government had at its disposal, uh, the government uh, in the judgment of the commission made a decision that was politically uh, defensible. And so then this ultimately comes down to, uh, I think, two issues. One is that if it was politically defensible, then the ball is ultimately in the court of Canadians as to, um, in, in uh, given that they ultimately choose the government, whether they are prepared to continue to vote for a government that made a decision that the commission judged politically defensible. So it's a political choice and Canadians have to decide whether they're happy on the political basis on which that choice was made. Um, and that it also comes down to any future government that's going to make this choice uh, will now have to contend with a judgment from the federal court uh, on the constitutionality and reasonableness and the conditions. This is what's important because the federal judgment here sets a precedent as to the conditions that a future decision would need to meet in order to be deemed constitutional and reasonable. And we didn't have that precedent previously. So effectively, now we are creating common law that will allow, um, uh, that will guide future government's decisions. And so I think what the court is saying that certainly um, the government needs, will need to provide uh, uh, better, there need to be different conditions present, uh, and the government will need to make a decision that is more carefully guided uh, by both the constitution and the charter and will need to articulate that uh, in a much better fashion if it wants to have a decision that is legally considered reasonable. Uh, Christia Freeland announcing this is going to the Supreme Court. Is this a solution or does this just punt everything down the field? No, I think it's absolutely critical. And I think uh, Justice Mosley would have would have figured that this decision would ultimately yeah. be appealed because whatever legal decision we get here sets the framework for any future conditions um, as well as the parameters with which the Emergencies Act uh, may, be, uh, may be invoked. And, the emergency, and invoking the Emergencies Act has huge ramifications, not just for civil liberties, but for instance, whether and how you might employ organizations uh, such, as the, uh, such as the Armed Forces, which, as you know, was one of the issues that came up for, uh, for discussion. And so it's absolutely critical that we have a definitive uh, ruling from the Supreme Court um, uh, to provide a, uh, a to provide a better framework for a government uh, to make decisions such as this in the future. And what we can see here is that certainly, if nothing else, both based on the Rural Commission's judgment as well as the judgment from the federal court, 
um, the government uh, was not on a solid ground as uh, the uh, ministers of the crown um, are making it out to be, uh, both in the decisions that it ultimately made as well as in the grounds and uh, that it provided and the way it articulated those grounds both to the public uh, and subsequently for review by both the uh, the commission as well as by the federal court. Uh, and so uh, certainly that uh, there is uh, a considerable work to do by a future federal government looking to invoke uh, uh, the Emergencies Act. Uh, many have suggested in inquiries and what have you that the problem was was this uh, was allowed to fester with nobody doing anything for the first three weeks and then uh, they wouldn't go home, sort of say. Um, have we learned anything from this? Are you confident, Christian, that there's a plan in place that this can't happen again? Have we solved the the issues on Parliament Hill around security? So I think on the one hand, there was sort of some politicking going on that everybody's sort of punting the ball into someone else's court. But in practice, um, there was a lot of non-politics going on, that ultimately what we needed was a political decision on how we're going to move forward, and nobody yeah. wanted to take a political decision, um, as in some cases likely because people felt it played to uh, to their electoral favors and strengths, but not taking a decision, uh, and in some cases because they felt it could be a political liability to take a decision, uh, so then in effect, uh, in effect, standing back. And so... Uh, I think there's a there's a steep learning curve that ultimately uh, it should have never come to the point. I think this is the message that certainly we can take away also from the federal court's ruling. It shouldn't have come to the point where the federal government yeah. felt it needed to invoke the Emergencies Act on grounds that uh, are percept more arguably more dubious than the government made it out to be both at the time and after review by the commission and the court. Um, if we had had an effective uh, emergency management and national security system in this country and our intelligence uh, system um, that it should provide adequate early warning would have been there. Remember that um, in, in continental Europe, think of France or Germany, you regularly have demonstrations with tens of thousands of people uh, that in a mature democracy, we became the laughingstock of the world mm. uh, because yeah. of how indifferent on the one hand and how incompetent we looked to the world uh, with a few thousand people demonstrating in downtown Ottawa. As you point out, it shouldn't have come to this. Um, uh, whoever had the wherewithal to let truckers uh, pull off the highway and uh, set up with their trucks, everybody has a right to demonstrate. You don't have a right to demonstrate with your truck. Um, and of course, in the current situations where people are demonstrating um, in cities in this country, in neighborhoods that uh, that have been interpreted as intimidating, there needs to be much more guidance in terms of, uh, you know, mm -hmm. that, that freedom of expression doesn't necessarily mean you can set up anytime, anywhere with whatever equipment you would want uh, and shout whatever it is you would like, that there are constraints uh, on that and that ultimately uh, we didn't see uh, the uh, operational system responding the way we needed it to, and we certainly didn't see political leadership uh, as we would have expected. Christian Laprac with us, professor, both the Royal Military College of Canada and Queen's University and a fellow at the Macdonald-Laurie Institute. Always fascinating, Christian. Thank you for the time. Be well. Thank you. Have a lovely evening, Scott. The provincial government is set to revamp full-day kindergarten uh, starting in 2025 as uh, they work to uh, add some back-to-basics instruction in math, literacy, alongside the current play-based learning. To talk more about all of this and what it means Next year, Stephen Lecce is with us, Minister of Education, Province of Ontario, and here now. Stephen, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. 
Thank you so much. It's great to be back. So uh, I think this might catch a lot of people by surprise. We didn't think that uh, uh, this was probably something that was your focus, but it's interesting nonetheless. What exactly are you doing to kindergarten? How is it different in 2025 than what it will be in 2024? You know, well, first off, it's all about going back to the basics and learning. And what we've learned is that through the Ontario Human Rights Commission, they put a landmark report, the Right to Read report. In it, it makes it clear that the current kindergarten program, and I use that word and emphasize it, is very much different than the curriculum because the program is a guide. It's a sort of, it sets out high level aims with an emphasis on play based learning. And it doesn't actually have the same rigor or standardization of clear expectations. And for the teacher, frankly, it doesn't arm them with a daily sense of expectations that need to be done. So we don't have that daily explicit learning on literacy or math. And we know the data is so clear. If we get this right at the front end, we can literally put a a child on a trajectory. It's not just to graduate, but to do well in our education get a good job, and be a productive citizen. So we're about getting this right at the front end for our youngest learners by ensuring that there's daily, structured, systematic learning on reading, on writing, and on basic math skills. And everyone knows we got to do a better job. We do good work in our kindergarten school uh, classrooms. Don't get me wrong. Shout out to the educators and the ECs. They do great work. But I just think we can go from good to great. We can level up. And I'm trying to pressurize the system, the schools, the teachers, principals, the government, the school board, everyone, we've got to step it up for the kids of tomorrow, for our future leaders. And I want to start with day one, when they start in the kindergarten journey, having a greater focus on those fundamental skills. Uh, Back to basic. And we know kindergarten uh, is more play-based and such. Many have said it's it's more like a daycare. And obviously, there's less uh, of a template, less of a structure with a kindergarten teacher and such. How does that change? How do you balance that with because many will say, well, maybe they're too young for that. Yet on the other hand, sure. some of them are pretty good on you know with a device in their hand. So how do you, how do you right? balance that? Well, they're, they're like they're little uh, little people. These kids, exactly. Uh, you know, you know, they got very strong opinions as I learned from my nieces and my nephews. Uh, soon we're going to be in kindergarten, but look, I mean, we're going to maintain uh, what has been a very effective all day world world class kindergarten program. It's play based. It's learning. It's supported by teachers and the EC. We've got that in all schools, all classrooms. That's going to remain unchanged. What is going to support that that natural curiosity, that desire to explore and play and inquire is is solid, and that's underpinned by research. What we're doing is we're layering in some, you know, structured rigor and, frankly, clear expectations for instruction. So it's not just they're just learning through play, but they're actually learning through some sense of instruction, which some teachers in Ontario, but not all kindergarten teachers are doing. And this sets out the highest standards where kids are going to be learning daily um, with this. There's three really key components. The first is it's going to be explicit, systematic instruction that's going to support the development of uh, foundational literacy skills. Step one. The second is a clear uh, progression of learning from kindergarten to grade one, we've got to create a connection between the two. And as you know, I've been on here before talking about our new grade one to eight curriculum. Well, we've got to connect the dots. The one was modernized and the other one was not. The, the kindergarten program was like almost a decade old with the former liberals who left a lot of our curriculum uh, stagnant, totally disconnected from the labor market. And it's 
it's totally, uh, you know, uh, an abdication of responsibility. If kids are learning skills that are disconnected, they're learning in math. In high school, for example, they weren't learning financial literacy. They weren't learning to code. They weren't learning about AI. And yet there's this massive disruption to the economy around those. So that's on them. For our government and our premier, we're getting this right. We're keeping it modern and we're making sure that there's clear connections, seamless connections. The third point concept is the continuation of the full-day learning program um, that allows kids to be kids. So greater rigor, higher standards, level up across the board. This is how we fundamentally go back to basics and how we ensure at the youngest levels, kids are learning skills, not by chance, through inquisitiveness or play, but by design, because they're going to be taught it in a very age-appropriate way, basic knowledge. Like we're talking about like teaching kids about coding. You know, people are like, oh my God, how are you going to do that? How are they going to learn yeah. to code? This is so scientific, so advanced. No, we're teaching kids about sequencing and direction, which yeah. is the basis of coding. And as they get into grade one and two and three, they'll learn more, let's say, sophisticated or mature or age-appropriate knowledge for their for that time. But we're going to build the foundation box and we're going to do it with a sense of determination because we know this is the right thing to do for kids. How much of this as well is about making the curriculum uh, consistent across the province? So no matter where you are, you're getting the basic stuff in kindergarten. I have long uh, raised this concern with you and others that, you know, if it's like, oh, the Ministry of Education is such a powerful ministry, my goodness, how wonderful, except no, it's like the least powerful because really school boards, 72 in Ontario, they do do their own thing. There was no yeah. consistency. There was no, you know, um, there was no common denominator that unified our education system. And so I brought Bill 98, the Better Schools and Student Outcomes Act. That legislation, you say, what was the big problem you're solving? It's the patchwork of experiences. I have friends who are in, you know, it could be in Hamilton, public and Catholic, and they have radically different experiences. They're the same home. One kid's in the public for whatever reason, one's in the Catholic. Totally different world, mm. norms, standards. That's not right. I want to standardize. I want to really force school boards to focus on foundational skills, get back to the basics of learning, let's master the skills that matter, and set kids up for long-term success, be it in STEM, you know, in science, technology, engineering, math, it could be in the arts, whatever. Whatever they choose, I want to support them. But if they don't, if we don't get this right at the front end, we're not going to ensure their success. And my challenge is, is that we have a patchwork of approaches, like not just board by board. I'm talking about school by school in the same board could mm. have different approaches. And that's the problem I'm solving by creating a standard and leveling from a program, sort of program, to a curriculum, more formal, more rigorous, and frankly, uh, with greater expectations attached with it for the teacher and for the child too. And that's going to be a good thing. Keep in mind, the one thing I want to just mention, plug in here is for parents, is we're going to be screening the child, meaning we're going to do a basic literacy assessment to see their kids at in their, in their reading skills in senior kindergarten, grade one, and grade two each year for three years. We're the only jurisdiction in the country to do it. Some of the problems they're doing it like one year, maybe two. We're the only ones doing it as comprehensive as such. And we're starting in senior kindergarten. Why? Because we want a baseline to help parents know where their kids are at. If they need more support, they're now going to know it. If they're doing the provincial average or doing well, they're going to know that too. And I just want to create a measurement tool. It's accountability for the classroom, but it's also good for the parents to know. And we're going to put on the report cards of families in Ontario. So you'll know that too. If your kid's behind, we're not just going to say, oh, geez, that's bad. Work on it, mom or dad, or you know, to the guardians or parents. No, no, we're, 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 we actually are part of today's announcement with $65 million in the next two years each year uh, to hire 700 educators who are specialized in literacy to help work with those kids that just may need a bit of help. And not all do, most don't. But for the ones that do, I want parents to know that we've, got, we've set aside the investments to make sure that there's people who are like some of the best literacy promotion experts you can hire. These are teachers, but very specialized skills 
who know exactly the science of reading, how to get these kids on track from being as young as SK all the way you know, to grade 12. Because we know if kids are not literate, illiteracy costs billions in productivity, hurts the economy, their mental health. So we're building those life skills from reading or mathematics or financial literacy. And we're starting really at the beginning of the journey for these kids. Stephen Lecce with us, Minister of Education for the province of Ontario. And coming up next year, 2025, revamping uh, the kindergarten curriculum in the province. Stephen, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Good luck. Thank you. Have a good day. Scott Radley, uh, host of the Scott Radley Show. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is here now. Scott, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. How are you? I'm doing well. Uh, your thoughts on the Emergencies Act and uh, a federal court judge ruling that it was uh, unconstitutional, unreasonable, unjustified, and um, and uh, shouldn't have happened. What are your thoughts uh, moving forward? You know, I don't want to overstate this, Scott, because I've been thinking about it all afternoon, well, as long as we've known about this. Uh, I, I don't want to overstate this. And, you know, nobody was, the government did not kill someone there was no shooting at people, but this now, according to the court, was a rather massive overreach of government power. And, you know, there are some people guaranteed who would say a leader of a country who used the force of the country, even if it was not violent force, who used the power of the country against people in his country should probably consider something like a resignation. There are leaders who would do that. I guarantee it. And, and, you know, I, I don't, I don't, as I say, I don't want to overstate it because I don't know that this is there, but my goodness, it is, um, I, I feel like it's something that should be close to that discussion. Do you? Uh, you know, I, I'm not sure that anything's been learned here and that if it happened tomorrow, that the same thing wouldn't happen um, because I'm not sure that there's a plan put in place because obviously he poked the bear and then the bear came and nobody, everybody thought the bear would leave with its tail between its legs. And of course, the opposite happened. Then three weeks later, you got to try to deal with it. But I think it's fascinating when Freeland wants to take it to the Supreme Court. And I've heard that that's a good idea just to find the boundaries of all of this. So we know sure. moving forward. But LeBlanc said, you know, well, well, there was all this munition and guns found that was in Alberta. That was at the U S Coots border crossing. And that was resolved before the emergencies act was, uh, was called. And then the justice minister all said, also said, well, we had the Rolo report and he said it was fine. Well, the Rolo report's not a court of law. It's, it, you know, it's, there's nothing. And we binding remember, we remember the criticism and, of that. Yeah. Cause he did he, chosen person yeah. who was handpicked by the government. Yes. And, and then Got said it. in the final report that he did not get all of the information. Right. And, right. you know, we don't even talk about the David Johnson thing. So how you can compare a commission set up and run by the liberals to a federal court is is night and day. And, you know, I wish rather than trying to push these distractions, they'd move this forward and say, well, uh, we, what can we learn from this and how do we make sure it never happens again? But instead, they're talking about, you know, munitions that were found in Alberta mm-hmm. and, and and stuff from the justice minister that's that's totally irrelevant because Rolo's case wasn't binding and had no no legal uh, teeth whatsoever. If this was earlier in the this government's mandate and this government's life, we might get an apology from Christian Freeland or Justin Trudeau. But at this point, the way the polls are. An apology would essentially be an admission of what I just said, of the government using its power against some of its citizens. That would be 
politically, probably in their mind, in the off, you know, they're sitting in the back rooms, the power brokers, that would be a terrible idea because now you've just handed over the admission that you way overstepped your bounds here. I, I don't know. I, to me, again, if you have a government that has all the control and, and Scott, I didn't mind that they cleared out the trucks. Uh, mm -hmm. I understand the people. They had to do something after three weeks of doing. Yeah. The, the, the scary thing to me about this whole thing, whether you agree with what they did, whether you don't, whether you like the government's response or you're backing the truckers, whatever. The scary thing was as soon as they started freezing the bank accounts, because that was a, that was a, a, a hint of not just chill to the people who were protesting here. It, to me, it was also the government sending a message to everyone saying, well, look what we can do. And I would hope that going forward, unless you're talking about a group that is not the threat of violence, that is committing violent acts or is on the very precipice of it being so right about to happen that there's no way to escape it. Ah, uh, that you start getting into some re that to me was the scariest part of this from the, from the reaction mm -hmm. side that came out of the emergencies act. And, and so again, there's going to be people who disagree because there's going to be people who are very happy with what the government did to say, get rid of those truckers. They were blocking everything and Ottawa sure. was being held hostage. But Soon it's after three weeks of doing not letting people pay their bills and live. And there is not an imminent, imminent, an obvious threat of imminent violence. That to me is in a dangerous spot. All right, Scott Radley coming up after the six o'clock news. You can read him in your spectator. Scott, thanks as always. Have a great show. See you, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. This one comes from Patty. A uh, federal court judge has ruled the Emergencies Act was unconstitutional and unreasonable and unjustified. But it's okay to harass shoppers, police, or those blocking or harassing Jewish neighborhoods and stores. That's okay. Since when? Patty. Keep right except to pass.